Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. We're grateful that you've joined us for part of your evening. My name is Doris Hansen, and I am the host of the program. A few months ago, I received in the mail a package which contained a book, and it was signed by the author. You know, I hadn't heard of this book before, and I hadn't heard of the author of the book either. It had come unsolicited, and the inscription in the book read like this, To Doris Hansen, your show has touched my soul. I hope my book will touch yours as well. And in truth, the book did touch my soul. I contacted the author. We met for lunch. We had a wonderful conversation as we got to know each other. And of course, I couldn't resist. I invited her to be a guest on our show, and she graciously accepted. She had grown up mainstream LDS in Bountiful, Utah. She attended BYU under undergraduate degree in history and J. Reuben Clark Law School. She left Utah at age 28 to work as a law clerk in the San Francisco Bay Area. Later she returned to Utah. She married an LDS man in 1984 in the Salt Lake City Temple. She has more than 25 years experience as a trial attorney in the civil justice system representing both defendants and plaintiffs. She is the mother of two sons, ages 18 and 26 years old. I would like to introduce as our special guest tonight, Kay Burningham. Thank you, Doris. Thanks for coming. I'm very excited to be on your show and watched it for many months and love it. And when I got your book, I was very surprised. I thought, who is this? <laughs> I don't think I know I'm familiar with this name. But when I saw the book, and I hadn't heard of the book before, I think you sent it to me right after it came out. I think so. And it was just fascinating. Just the title itself fascinated me. So, and the book is entitled, An American Fraud, One Lawyer's Case Against Mormonism. The, the picture of the cover is there on the screen. Uh, it's, it, would you it, uh, explain to our viewers why you wrote the book and where they can pick up a copy and maybe give them your email, or sure. not your email, but your website sure. address? Um, the book is available uh, at both Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com online. Um, I'm not certain that it's available in stock at Barnes and Noble. It is available online, mm -hmm. and there's also a Kindle version uh, that's very inexpensive on Amazon with uh, linked notes. So there's quite a bit of resource material, and it makes it easy. Mm -hmm. um, my website is just my name. It's easy to remember: kburningham.com. And as to your first question, I wrote the book because after years of working as a trial attorney and years of being an LDS woman, I felt that there was something in the law that especially Mormon women and maybe Mormon men as well needed to know that fit with the church. And the only way I could figure out how to get that information out was to describe what I thought was going on with Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to criticize mm -hmm. the average Mormon because there's so many good Mormons. Mm -hmm. And my family, my immediate family, my extended family, the Birminghams grew up in Bountiful. They're wonderful people. But 
there's something different about the leadership, something that's not forthright, and I think that deserved a serious analysis. And that needs to be talked about. I think needs so. To be talked about. Now, your book is actually in two parts. Uh, the first part being the, your life and your experiences as a Mormon, and then the, the last part of being your, from a legal mind, from a legal standpoint, your case against the Mormon church. Uh, so tonight what we're going to do is discuss the first part, uh, covering your life growing up and some of your experiences. And then two weeks from tonight, on May 10th, uh, we're going to interview uh, Kay again, and we're going to go through the lawyer's case, one lawyer's case against Mormonism. So you'll want to be sure and tune in on May 10th as we discuss the legal case, possible legal case, or, or, or feasible legal case against Mormonism. So let's get started with your own personal experience um, growing up as a Mormon. But first of all, <clears throat> let's talk about Mormon doctrine, how you viewed the Mormon doctrine of polygamy uh, when you were a young girl growing up in Bountiful. How did that affect you? Well, my father was very supportive, and he was not an active member of the church, even though my mother and grandparents were involved, uh, at least on my father's side, and his, his brothers were also involved deeply. But he, he was my biggest champion. He told me I could do anything I wanted to do, that I was smart and talented, and uh, he had a lot of faith in me. And then I would go to church or seminary, and in particular in high school, I became involved with a lot of popular Mormon kids at Bountiful High. And in the seminary class, I remember listening to section 132 about polygamy and, and that the wife has to do whatever the husband tells her to do, and uh, you know, even if it's you know he has six new virg virgins or however many it was, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I just remember thinking, you know, that's not right. You know, um, six women for one man, um, and I had just I even did some research into it and found out that there are more bo boy babies born than females mm -hmm. back then. And that's true. so I would raise my hand and ask the seminary teacher, well, what about this? What about this? And and he just seemed to gloat in his, this is the doctrine, this is what the Lord wants. And, and I thought to myself, if I were God, if, I, if God is omniscient and omnipotent, omnipotent, excuse me, I would not make rules like that. I mean, it is not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. Women have the power to conceive. They have the power to do so much in the world. They're at least men's equals. Mm -hmm. So it bothered me mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you were in Bountiful, uh, you talked, it actually quite surprised me, our first conversation, you talked about this particular department store in Bountiful, you know, <laughs> and it brought back a lot of mm -hmm. memories, the co-op uh, department store, I think yeah, it was called. Yeah, well, was it? I, I think, yeah, it was the co-op, and it was on Main Street, and I don't know, to compare it to a department store today, it was so small that maybe back then it was considered a department store. But I remember passing that store on the way to get ice cream at Hunter's. And we looked in there, and my mom goes, oh, don't go in there. That's the polygamous store. And it was kind of taboo. <laughs> and they had old shoes and old clothes, and it wasn't very appealing anyway. So, But I, I had the sense that they were on the periphery of, of Mormon culture, and I was yeah. always looking out for some polygamist yeah. to be here. I wonder how they knew they were polygamous. Of course, I'm sure the, the, the gossip machine was going on that. But, yeah. but we used to shop there all the time. Exactly. So when you said that, it brought back huge uh, deja vu memories. Huh. But uh, we would go there all the time. I don't recall that they sold old clothes and outdated hmm. shoes, but then I wouldn't know whether they were or not anyway because mm -hmm. we just did didn't uh, have up-to-date things as it was. We weren't supposed to. Uh, did you realize as you were growing up that Section 132 
of your church's doctrine and covenants advocated, even commanded polygamy. Did you know that? Were you taught that? Yes, I, I felt that that was very explicit, and um, particularly in high school, as I indicated by my seminary teacher, and that that was going to be a requirement to achieve the highest level of exaltation in the Mormon church. And I didn't want that. I thought if, if that was a requirement, why would any woman want to aspire to that? Why mm -hmm. not just go to the mm -hmm. Telestial, where there's bound to be more men than women? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like and, and I asked this question, um, too, because... It, it was only just a, a couple of weeks ago we, we got a call on the air during one of the shows. Plus, I get emails all the time and remarks from people. Section 132 is not about polygamy. It's about temple celestial marriage. And yet you could see that as you mm. was growing up. In some, How do... Well, if you read it. I mean, I think the problem is a lot of LDS people don't read the actual scriptures verbatim, read the history where it came from. Just read the language that's... You can't escape that. Um, that's what we think, but they, it yeah. escapes them. One lady's email came last week, actually, and she was very critical. Uh, and she said the ten virgins aren't in the, the DNC 132. That's a parable in the Bible. Well, that's true. The ten, it is a parable in the Bible, but it's also in section it 132. Is. If a man has ten virgins, he's not going to be yes. sinning. That's yes. what it says. And he, yes, and it's fine for him to do that. Uh -huh, right? yeah. Well, and then also the church, um, LDS.org, its own website, indicates that section 132 comments on the plurality of wives. And so it, you know, its own admission is that polygamy is part of the doctrine. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see how that argument can be made. Well, they, and they do it, though, all the mm -hmm. time. They do it. Um, so the idea of polygamy was troubling to you. Was that a faith-breaking doctrine for you? Um, I would say yes. It was always in the back of my mind along with the racial inequity with the dark-skinned Lamanites and the, the inability of the blacks to have the priesthood. Uh -huh. And that sort of came to a head when I, I went to South Africa when I was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Both those things were very troubling because I did not think that a just God would, would have any such rules. Uh, and you know, those were troubling to me too, growing up in a polygamy group, but the racial issue, those two issues were, uh, were big for me as well. Now the first chapter of your book focuses on the black issue of Mormonism. Would you uh, talk a little bit about your experiences in South Africa sure. and how that changed your view of Mormonism? Sure. Um, I had never seen a black person growing up in Bountiful, Utah before we left in 1974. And I was a dancer at BYU with a group called Young Ambassadors. And our director took the four dancers with Young Ambassadors uh, and combined it with some singers from another group. And we combined with the South African Defense Force Orchestra, which was then, of course, under apartheid. Uh, mm -hmm. segregated rule mm -hmm. and we had a variety show that raised money for the victims of terrorism and what that meant back then is that in 74 in both South Africa and Rhodesia there were as, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare the black native population were trying to cast off white rule and because it was oppressive and it was wrong and, and they were the minority and so the world's council of churches had actually come out in support of terrorist activities because apartheid, apartheid was so oppressive to the native South Africans. Mm -hmm. Well, our um, group, BYU, which is of course the Mormon college, um, didn't think there would be a problem going over there and raising money for the victims of terrorism and didn't really see any issue with it, I, I found out. Uh -huh. And so we went over there and we did 
a variety show with Doobie Brothers songs and Loggins and Messina. It was really bright and had lots of costumes. And, and I kept looking because our director told us, oh, yeah, there's going to be some Native Africans in the, in the uh, audience. And I kept looking, and you could only see the first few rows when you're on stage. But, but when the, the lights came up and people were leaving, I looked, for instance, in the Johannesburg Coliseum, and they have four balconies. And I looked at the highest balcony, hoping that at least that level would be safe for the, the Bantu. And no, it was all white. And I never saw a black person attend until... We were in Sharidzi, Rhodesia, which is about five miles from Mozambique. And then there were some that came out of the, the trees and kind of sat around the periphery. It was an outside show, and they were really, really engaged because they hadn't seen. Back then, there was no television, one yeah. station in Rhodesia, and nobody came to South Africa or Rhodesia to perform. It just it was too... It just wasn't known. Yeah. And so that was interesting, but that was the only time we saw that. But, but the thing that struck me was that the segregation was everywhere, segregated beaches, segregated um, buses and entrances and restaurants, and it was coffer and, and blanc and knee blanc, white and, and non-white. And they had sort of a caste system, which was the darkest were the lowest, and then the Indians mm. or mulatto were in between. But they're still non-white. And then the whites, the ruling class. Yeah. And I thought, that is so unfair. And some of the priesthood holders over there, I asked them, what about the Negro doctrine, as it was called back then? Do you think they'll ever get the priesthood? And, and I had responses like, no, they're, they're intellectually inferior to us. I don't think they ever will. And yet four years later, they got it. the revelation. So it was yeah. very striking to me how oppressive I thought, this isn't because of any innate inferiority. This is because one group took control yeah. and they have oppressed the native Exactly right. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a life changer for you in, in the way you were viewing uh, exactly. some of the Mormon doctrine. Exactly. Now today, uh, we, and we've talked about this earlier, today the, the Mormon church has officially said that racism was never a part of their doctrine and they didn't know why they, the priesthood was not allowed, that it was kind of like folklore, something like that. What do you again, say about that? Again, that's a an attempt, I think, to rewrite their history, very Orwellian. Um, it's in the book of Abraham. I remember reading about that. Um, I think it's um, Abraham 126 uh, addressed Pharaoh, and they indicate that he was cursed as performing to the priesthood. And not only that, but in the Journal of Discourses, which were it's, revered. It's on, and, the, excuse okay. me, it's sure. on the screen. Do you want to read oh, that? Oh, okay. Or? No, you can go ahead. Doris. Uh, uh, in the book of Abraham, chapter 1, verse 26, says, Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam and also of Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. So they do believe that the priesthood, um, taking the priesthood was a curse. Correct. Because of a curse. Correct. It's right there in their scripture. Right, which was canonized many years later, but it was canonized, and it's still part of the scriptures today. I mean, there's something in the law that says if you don't disavow something or negate it or say that's not true, then you're deemed to admit it, especially when the book of Abraham has been out there and that scripture has not been withdrawn. Well, it's like the polygamy scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yes. It's not been withdrawn. Yes. And so they, they, they yes. still believe in polygamy. They just are not practicing it it's right now. It's a subtle admission. It's the same with racism. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. And why don't they remove them? 
or an apologize or something. Why don't they? Good question. They should. It is a good question. Yeah. Um, now, uh, whenever we... Uh, Whenever I come across things like this, I always love to go to the Bible because the beauty of the Bible is that uh, there's something for everything there. And there certainly are great scriptures in the Bible that, that deals with prejudice and racism and sexism. But I chose two verses, one from James chapter 2, verse 9, um, where it says, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And so James is saying very clearly that um, showing favoritism is breaking the law. Now, that's the law of God they're talking about. It's not talking about the law of the land, but the law of God. And so it's, it is condemning prejudice, racist, or sexism. And then we have 1 Timothy 5.21, where it says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. And so whenever favoritism is shown for whatever reason, whether it's sex or race mm -hmm. or anything else, from its very beginning, Mormonism, including the polygamists, they are still mm -hmm. very racist. Uh, they, they have been all ball deep in favoritism from the beginning. That's correct. And, and even in our secular law, um, the, the, um, the 14th Amendment provides for equal treatment under the law. Mm -hmm. There's not supposed to be discrimination. Exactly. Um, let's go to your family relationships. Mm -hmm. How did Mormonism affect that, your family relationship? Um, well, I probably am a good example of the two ways that I think it affects family relationships. When somebody decides that they can no longer believe in good conscience the tenets of Mormonism and they decide to leave the church, it's very troubling. And um, my marriage, uh, I've been married twice, and I would say both of my marriages, two Mormon men, were severely impacted by the degree of belief that we each had in the church. Mm. And um, both of them were very staunch. Um, ever since I was 19, I was questioning but wanted to believe, but back and forth until I finally left in my, in my early 40s or mid-40s. And so that lack of commitment, equal commitment or being equally yoked mm -hmm. was very troubling. And I think that because Mormonism is so culturally and socially all-encompassing, Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to have different levels of commitment, and it's certainly almost impossible, I think, to be an ex-Mormon or former Mormon and an active, temple-going Mormon. It, you just can't do it. So, yeah. so yeah. I think it interferes in the gender roles, uh, women that want to do more with their life than maybe, you know, the, um, what the, the church would have them do. Um, that's a problem, especially when their husbands think that they should stay home. And, and then when you chose to leave, how did that impact your yeah. family? Yeah, that was really hard because my extended family is very active in the church. And they're very good people. But, for instance, uh, my sister, uh, she's wonderful. And I've always wanted to be close to her. And um, I, I do think that the admonition in the temple interview that, you know, about apostates, um, when they ask, are you involved with any apostate groups? Do you sympathize with any apostate groups or words to that effect? That um, has a really a chilling effect on family relationships. And in my own personal experience, it has really, I think, harmed mm -hmm. the relationships with my sibling, mm -hmm. my sister, and maybe my extended family as well. And my question would be to you, uh, to anybody who's watching the show tonight or who will watch our show in the future, would Jesus do that? Uh, would I Jesus countenance yeah. that kind of treatment 
or that kind of. You know, what comes to my mind, <clears throat> pardon me, is a story in the Bible where a rich man came to Jesus and he said, what do I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus knew that he had an idol, idol with money. Mm. So he said, you've got one problem. Take your money, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me. And the Bible says that the rich man turned and walked away from Jesus, sad because he was very rich. Mm. Jesus stood there and watched him walk away. He didn't run after him. He didn't threaten him. He didn't beg him not to walk away from him. He let him go. Mm. And that's what the Mormons and the polygamists and everybody else that tries to hang on need to do. They need to let them go. Jesus did. Mm -hmm. And that's a good example no, that is of what good. Jesus did. But anyway, uh, that's uh, you've no doubt suffered from your experience of leaving like so many people do. Right. And I think that the really bad part as well is that, that you can't talk about what's true in religion. It's just verboten. I mean, after yeah. you leave, and, and it would be so much better if you could say, well, this is how I feel, and this yeah. is how I came to my yeah. conclusion, but there's no speaking about but it. You can't talk you about can't. it. No yeah. freedom of speech is yeah. in it. Um, let's go to something that we don't want to get dig into deeply at all um, for various reasons, obvious reasons, but what did you think of the temple ceremony and the garments? Do you see them as a sociological component to these requirements of Mormonism? Well, I think they're controlling devices. I think uh, when you mandate that you wear certain clothing, that your diet should be a certain way, that you go to a certain building and perform pantomimes uh, so many times a month or a year. That is a way to control people. That is a sociological manipulative device. It's not of God. It's not something that that is any in any way spiritual. It's yeah. just a way to keep the members oppressed. And yeah. that's how I felt. And controlled. Controlled yes. and oppressed. And I felt that the garments were very suffocating. I thought that the I did the pantomimes uh, so when you, I was in eighty four. You did them before they took the blood oaths out of yes. the ceremony then. What did you think about those blood oaths? Well, I, I, I'm trying to recall now. I know that I did pantomimes, the slitting of the throat and the bowel pantomime. And I can't remember the exact language, but I do remember initially being almost laughing at how ridiculous the whole thing was and thinking, is this for real? And then when I kind of thought about it deeper, I was very, very troubled. I thought, I can't commit to this. I, I, I'm having a lot of trouble. This is very strange and new and, and doesn't feel like it is at all from God. So it was, it was really, yeah. really troubling. Yeah, and, and God would never, in fact, the yeah. New Testament says, don't take oaths in Correct. His name. It's yes, let your yes be yes yeah. and your no be no. Right. Um, I've talked several times on our show of how the requirements of the polygamy groups and other Mormon groups are so far removed from biblical ba basics. In fact, the first time that the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus was right after that, he had, that they perceived he had broken the law of the Sabbath day. And it says immediately they went off and plotted on mm -hmm. how they would uh, kill Jesus because he refused to comply with their man-made regulations mm -hmm. of how to keep the Sabbath day. They couldn't handle the truth, and so they killed him. And in Mark 7, you mentioned um, the, the diet requirement requirements. Mark 7, Jesus announced all foods as being clean. Mm -hmm. 
There are no dietary requirements mm -hmm. or garment requirements mm -hmm. or temple oath requirements by Jesus Christ. Um, so you're right, all of this is a controlling, and I think it's a vehicle to place guilt yes. so that people will carry guilt yes. for not doing what they've been mm -hmm. told to do. And you're right. It's, Mormonism is very legalistic, very letter of the law, and the spirit, it can kill the spirit, I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And that, by the way, is said so in the Bible. Let me share another verse with you from the Bible. In Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 20 through 23, it says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Notice it says they're based on human commands, not God's commands. Mm -hmm. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in satisfying the flesh. So these commands of not don't eat, don't drink, don't do this, don't do that, are all that. human commands. And I believe faults create false humility. I believe so. And so you recognize that with probably without even realizing it's I've already written about. I recognized there was a problem with it and it wasn't until I was older that I put it in its proper perspective mm -hmm. as a control device. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened with mm -hmm. me as well. Okay, uh, we are um, at, um, halfway through the show now so we're going to um, give our message, our message about our ministry, excuse me, I'm just kind of tied up in my, in my words right now, but uh, we will uh, open up the phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Uh, please, when you get online or on the air, would you please remember to turn your TV volume down? And we also ask that you don't rabbit trail off what we're talking about. Please keep on topic out of respect for our guest. Uh, and you want to call in and ask my guest or me a question, please keep on topic of what we've been uh, discussing this evening. You can begin to call in now, and we do have our message to share with you. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877 Four two five nine 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 three, or email us at tv at aboutpolygamy.com. You are welcome to join us in our monthly support group, Life After Polygamy, where you can meet others like yourself who are searching for answers about polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism. We meet monthly in the Salt Lake City area. For more details about time and place, call us toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at tv at aboutpolygamy.com. We want you to know that we've made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand 
of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, free of charge to you, is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show. Uh, we are interviewing Kay Burningham. She's the author of the book, uh, um, A uh, American Frog, One Lawyer's Case Against Mormonism. And again, I'd like to remind you that on May 10th, she will be back, and we are going to discuss the legal side of her book. Tonight we're discussing her personal experience growing up in the Mormon church. Uh, our phone line is open if you want to call in and ask her some questions um, or just kind of get into the conversation that we've been talking about. We'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 801-973-8820. Uh, you're welcome to call in now. Um, I want to uh, to ask you a question right now about your uh, experience, your training uh, experience as an attorney. How did that training experience affect you as an attorney? How did it affect your view of polygamy and Mormonism? Well, it, it's interesting. In the law, you're trained to how to think. Some people think you go to law school and you memorize case law or statutes or a law here or there, that's not what happens. You're trained how to think, meaning um, here's the law, here are the facts, how do I apply the law to the facts? And there's a lot of cynicism and skepticism tools that you learn to apply during that process. Um, as a trial lawyer, I was always looking at how to prove my case or disprove the other person's case. And so through the decades of doing that and trying many jury trials, I started to view Mormonism as what if it was on trial? The, the religion Mormonism, not the people, uh -huh. not any one person, although maybe Joseph Smith would be a good one. Yeah, we put him up there. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and I started to think, you know, can this be supported as a legitimate religion? Or is this really a business under the guise of religion? Is this... And so I started to ask questions. I started to say, what is the evidence that points out that it is not a, a true religion? And I went back to the primary sources and all the writings uh -huh. that people have, have done and, and found a lot of really damning evidence that Joseph Smith was not what the church would have you believe and that a lot of the sources of the scripture is not what they pretend it to be mm -hmm. or not what they pretend it to be. And mm -hmm. the whole thing sort of just fell down under close analysis like a house of cards. Uh -huh. yeah. And that process probably took a year of reading and analyzing and I thought, this is a fraud. This is no different than the Enron accounting fraud or Bernie Madoff and this is why we have affinity fraud in Utah. Because people wow. believe, if you say it sincerely and with enough, you know, 
Oh, Charisma. isn't that what they do? This is my testimony. I feel it's yes. true. Well, and, and their feeling becomes their guideline for well, truth. And, and see, truth cannot be determined from a feeling. That's when somebody bears their testimony and gives an emotional account of all these special things that have happened to them. Then they make the, the illogical, the error in causation, thinking that because they've had these things happen, good things, it must be because the church is true. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. There's a big jump in logic there, and that's yeah. not true. Yeah. Uh, that that yeah. just doesn't follow. No, it no. doesn't. And feelings, I mean, feelings are just too uh, barometric. They can you be, just can't. Yeah, they can be manipulated. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they are often they are. with this as well. Yeah. Okay, um, we have some calls on the screen. You know, there's no lights written lit up on my phone. Let's hope that they're there. Hello, Dan? Hello, hi. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, I just have a question that... Uh, I've been wondering about, um, in the Old Testament, God gave many laws, of course, and, and some things in the Old Testament, it points out, were a, an abomination to, to God. Um, and, and so, apart from grace, saving grace, as written by Paul in Ephesians, uh, what standards are there? It seems there should, there's some expectation or standards you at least shouldn't be like living in maybe homosexuality or living certain lifestyles that might be an abomination to God. Aren't there standards outside of grace, I guess, would be my... Well, of course there are standards, that they're, and they're all over the, Old or the New Testament of what a Christian should and shouldn't do. Uh, the grace idea is not... Uh, is, is not that we throw away the law and that we don't have any standards. Grace means that we are saved by grace, not by the law. That, that doesn't mean that we become lawbreakers and, and, and just go out and do everything we want just because God saves us through His grace. Yeah, I understand that. And there's, there's an article of, of faith, I believe, in the, in the Mormon church that you can be saved by the law, which is right. you know, not, not biblical. Right. However, um, uh, which laws do we know to pick and choose for the standard of a Christian? Um, well, the standard, I mean, so many. the standard of a Christian, the Bible tells us that when we become a Christian, God writes His laws on our heart. And when His laws are written on our heart, then we know what's right and wrong. We know it. In fact, even the non-Christian has a conscience. They know something's right or wrong. And so we, when, we, when his laws are written on our heart and we know what's right or wrong, we just don't do the, the, the wrong things. And, and all of the law is summed up in two, love God and love each other. And if we do everything, we won't ever do anything that will either uh, uh, hurt God or hurt our fellow man. So those two laws, again, were to love God and love one another. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. To sum and it all up. All the laws are summed up in that, because we'll never do anything that would offend God or hurt, our, hurt each other. And that covers okay. it all. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, uh, we have line two, Matthew, Salt Lake City. Hello, Matthew. Hello, I've got a question for your guest, Kay. Okay. Uh, I... I I'm not sure how to put this. I don't want to sound offensive, but I mean, you know, you're you're obviously an intelligent woman. You're you're an attorney, and you're articulate. Uh, my question is, why did he get married in the temple twice? 
you know, I understand the first time you said you were young, a, a, a younger woman, but, you know, you, you mentioned that you knew how ridiculous the, the blood oaths and all that stuff was, so why did it take you a second time to make the same mistakes before you, you figured out what a, what a fraud the Mormon church is? Uh, thanks, Matthew. Um, I think there was a misunderstanding. I, I was not married in the temple twice. I was married once in the temple in 1984. Um, my husband was abusive, and we were divorced. Is he still there? I think he hang out. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I wasn't married a second time. My second husband did try to get me to go back through the temple, and that didn't work out at all. So. Okay, so you weren't married twice no, in the temple? No, I wasn't. But you were married twice? Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Matthew, for calling in. And we have our next call is line three, Ed in Centerville. Hello, Ed. Yes. You're on the air. What's yes, your... Doris, are you there? I'm here. <laughs> we're both here. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. Uh, the temple ritual work was alluded to. But I seldom hear about the discussions regarding where it originated from. Was not Joseph Smith a master mason with a charter from the Lodge of England where this ritual was then taken and used as part of the temple ritual? Uh, I used to be a Mormon, and when I, was, when I questioned this, I was told that it was the opposite. The Mormons stole it from the... Uh, where the Masons stole it from the Mormons. <laughs> that it was actually religious in nature. But historically, that is not true. That's one of the things that led me away with some of the questions I had that, you know, historically you can research this and find out what's true and not true. Have you done much research on that? Yeah. Yes, Ed, you're, a you're absolutely right and correct. And, and from my research and just what I noticed uh, in the temple, um, if you if you learn about the Freemasons and how they use symbols of architecture and hold your hand to the square and, and the um, grip and the nail and all these signs are allegories. If you would like to make a call. Whoop, he hung Whoops. up. Go ahead. <laughs> They're allegories for Freemasonry and, and as well as the, the oaths and penalties. They were there in Masonry, I believe, from my research prior to Mormonism mm -hmm. and very coincidental that Joseph Smith became a, a mason and just soon thereafter they were added uh, as requirements in the temple ceremony. So clearly the masons have a lot, had a lot of influence on the LDS temple ceremony and uh, it just doesn't make sense for people to be raising their arm to the square when they have nothing to do with the construction industry. Yeah, yeah. And, and another interesting thing is, I don't know if you've come across this uh, remark, but jo you know Joseph Smith when he got into the religion thing he said uh, we have to restore Christianity because of this so-called right. apostasy. Right. He did the same thing. He said the same thing about masonry mm. that they needed to restore true masonry because the old the the true masonry had been Incorrupt. lost. Yeah. So it it was the same story, just mm -hmm. just a different organization. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's yeah I thought that was quite funny when mm. I when I read that. We have an off-the-air question. Uh, uh, they said the daughter has converted to the Mormon Church. Is she now forbidden to have contact with? her non-LDS mother. Would you yeah, know if they would do I, that? It's I don't think that's true. I think, um, as I said before, my understanding and from communication with current Mormons now, in the temple, temple uh, worthiness interview, they just ask if you sympathize with apostate groups. Um, I don't think the church, as a matter of policy, requires that you sever ties with your father or your daughter or, or mm -hmm. you know any of your family members. But 
But in fact, sometimes that's the, that's the unhappy result. So I don't think happen. it's a matter of policy. And it definitely happens with polygamy groups. Yeah. If you leave, you're it's mm -hmm. it's over. They mm -hmm. just won't even allow that. So I hope that answers your question for the off-the-air question. Okay, we have Martha calling from Cottonwood. Hello, Martha. Yes, hello. Yes, you're on the air, Martha. What's your question? Hi, thank you so much. Uh, not so much of a question, Doris, but just a thank you for the service that you are providing for us. Just uh, um, watch your show regularly. And when I tuned in tonight, I uh, saw that you were interviewing Kate Burningham, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to say that I am currently reading her book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it is a wonderful book. It is so well documented. She has uh, almost 700 footnotes in here from all sources, um, her, her legal status, her personal story. It's just quite intriguing to me, and it has taught me so much more than what I had already known about um, the truth of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I do come from a mixed Mormon, non-Mormon home. I myself am a born-again Christian, mm -hmm. so um, I can kind of testify a little bit to the um, shunning, shall I call it, uh, one, uh, one way or another that uh, sort of occurs while it's not, I know it's not church, uh, LDS church uh, authorized <laughs> to do that probably, but it really does happen. And, um, but I just wanted to comment to thank Kay for her book and to thank you for your uh, ministry, Doris. And thank you, Martha. And I, I need to say we thank the TV station who offers us this opportunity and for all the many people behind the scenes who also make this possible. Uh, and we are Absolutely. very grateful for that. And Martha, please watch it in a couple of weeks because Kay will be back and we're going to talk about the legal part of her book, that, the, the last uh, half of her book. And so be sure and watch on May 10th for that too. I will be tuning in if at all possible. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Good night. Good night. Okay, Diane calling from West Valley. Hello, Diane. Yes. Yes, you're on the air. Thank you, honey. You, what's your question? Hi, Doris. Uh, yes, what's your question? I love you so much. You have done so much for our whole world, actually. You have done so much. And you're such a beautiful lady and a wonderful person. And you're visit her there with you tonight. I've got her book, too, and I'm reading it, and I thank her, too, and thank I just you. wanted to ask you one question. I was a Mormon until 1983. Then I was reborn again, and I'm a Christian now, and I am not well. I've had cancer three times. And my one oldest son has died, and my other two children have left me. My family's left me because I left the Mormon religion. And I am now a reborn Christian, and this is very, very hard on me, especially being ill like I am. And I just want to know what is your best advice me to do about this should I just keep trying or just 
keep reading the Bible, which I do all the time, or give up, or what should I do? Doris, I'm just asking you, please tell me what to do. Well, Diane, don't ever give up. Don't ever do that. You have um, someone who is with you, um, and that someone is Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And he is our comforter. In the, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to, to live within us when we become born again. And he is our comforter. So be comforted knowing that. And as far as the family, your Mormon family that has shunned you, um, that, that is such a heartbreak. And you can't help that. But you can pray for them. And, um, and, and, and get Christian fellowship, get other people around you who will help to, to uh, uh, help you out of these depressing times. Uh, but just keep your, keep your faith and, and, and just keep your, your trust in God because this happened to Jesus. And Jesus said if it would happen to him, it would also happen to those who follow him. Well... Doris, bless your heart. I just believe every word you say, but I just get so lonely because me and my daughter were so close. And Are you involved in any Christian church, Diane? Me, has anything to do with me. Uh, Diane, are you involved with any church? Any? I'm trying to find. I cannot drive anymore because of my health, and I'm out here in West Valley, and I'm trying to find somebody that will take me come and pick me up and I'll even give them gas money if they'll take me to do a you have Christian the, church. Diane, and Diane, I you? have not had any good results. If you know anybody out here Diane, 3500 South area, well, don't, get, don't give your address. Um, would you Diane, let me know? Diane, why don't you leave your phone number with the operator? And we can contact you and get a hold of some Christian churches in your area where they would reach out to you and help you and pick you up for church or whatever. But you do need to have people around you so you won't be so lonely and depressed. So that. whoever has uh, line two, would you take this lady's telephone number and then Diane and I will give you a call and we can talk about this off the air. Thank you very much, and I love Doris very much. Thank and you, she's Diane. A sweetheart, and anybody, anybody that ever puts her down, they're out of their mind. Well, Diane, all people makes up the world, and thank you for calling. Thank you, sweetheart. Good night. Bye. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and people who are inclined to pray for people, why don't you pray for Diane? Okay, line three, we have David calling from Bountiful. Hello, David. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I just wanted to call and say you are the most courageous woman, Doris. Your, your bravery and uh, the things you've been through in life. Well, I don't know if it's courage or if it's just uh, the Lord helping me along. <laughs> God bless you. Yes. And I just wanted to comment also on uh, Kay and her book. It's Definitely something to to write a book like this that is definitely true. That goes against the culture, the people that are involved in this uh, religion or or cult or this control that they have in their lives. Um, for you to write that and, and to expose it, that's um, that's courage too. 
uh, unbelievable, courageous mm -hmm. woman. And uh, I'm grateful for you, and God bless you. Thank you, um, David. I'm, I'm uh, engulfed in the LDS Church. I'm, uh, I'm surrounded by it. Um, I am a born-again Christian. I put all my faith in Jesus Christ. My family, my wife, no one knows any of this. I, I know the truth through uh, God and the Spirit, and I don't think that I could get away, I don't think I could get out of it and uh, survive because of the way that they treat the people that do decide to leave, that find Christ, and want to dedicate them, their whole lives to Christ. The Church just shuns them, they do unspeakable things to them, I fear that I would lose everything if I did that. So I feel kind of ashamed because I secretly watch your show and Sean McCraney's show, and I go to a Christian church on Sunday after I go to the LDS church. Good. And I wish I had the courage and bravery that you and Kay have. Well, the day may come when you'll come up with more courage than you thought you had to because God gives us courage. And boldness. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you, David. Uh, I pray for you guys, and uh, thank you for the book. The book is great. I read it straight through. Thank you, uh, David. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It just uh, uplifted me, and, and thank you for writing that. Thank you, David. Thank you for calling. Good night. Okay, we have a couple of, of off-the-air questions. The first one is, if men are polygamous in heaven... Will, uh, where will all the women come from since they can only get there by marrying Mormon men? Can you figure that equation? Let me read that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> if, if men are polygamous in heaven, where will all the women come from since they can only get there by marrying Mormon men? It's sort of a catch-22, isn't it? It's well, they get a second chance. Don't, don't, uh, when people die, they get a second chance. The baptism's for the dead, and then women, if they choose to go right. to heaven, then they get to go to heaven if they become a polygamous wife of these Mormon men, maybe? Maybe. I, you know, I haven't worked out the details because at one point it just became not important to me when I left. So, <laughs> but that's an interesting, interesting sort of question. And it's a question that can't be answered, really. Yeah, I think it, that's true. And even if the Mormon church hummed and hawed around that, they, they think couldn't. That's true. They but, couldn't. you know, it brings up something really interesting is uh, when the church reports its statistics every April on how many new baptisms and new members of record, uh, I was wondering uh, about baptisms for the dead, and there's been a lot about that, and I wonder if they count the baptisms for the dead in their new members. A lot of people have been asking that question. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. We don't really know the answer, yeah. and they wouldn't tell us that either. Okay, the next off the air question, Kay, is for you. Do you ever get bad mail because of your book? You know, I'm surprised at how little there has been. Um, in, in fact, I, I did get a bad review when it initially came out on Amazon. And uh, it was one star, and the uh, gentleman referred to Buddhist, B-O-O-T-I-S-T-S. -S, and, and Amazon, I believe, took it down because only a small percentage of people thought it was a valid review. Um, after that, I haven't really had any hate mail, so to speak, if that's what you're asking about, until a few days ago, maybe a week ago, and I had someone email me directly 
um, indicating that he was also a lawyer and he was upset about what I had said. But on the other hand, I've had several lawyers come out in direct support of me and what I've done and uh, some very favorable comments from my peers. So, you know, that's, that's bound to happen. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you get the good and, and the bad. Mm -hmm. But, it's, but it's, it's nice to read the critical ones as well because you know what kind of people, yeah. you know, what they're, where they're coming from you in do. reading your book. You do. That's true. Okay, another one for you. Um, would you, Kay, comment directly on LDS leadership? Are they pathological liars? And what is your basic view of the LDS leadership? Well, that is a very broad question. And as we know, LDS leadership encompasses 115 or so men, if you count the First Presidency, the Twelve Apostles, and the two quorums of the 70s. And certainly I, can't not, I cannot make a blanket statement that they're all pathological liars, and nor would I. Um, but there are different levels, I believe, of understanding and of knowledge among these men. And I think certain men who are educated in the law and who are highly intelligent um, are being deceptive in what they do. And I think it's really hard for them. And I think uh, psychologically, when you, go, when you come to the point where you realize something you have believed in is a lie, you have to go through a number of steps before you accept that. And I think we've seen that uh, lately because first there's denial then there's anger, then there's justification. And all these steps, I believe, are, going, are being gone through by, by many of the leaders of the church at different levels, at their own pace, depending upon how much they've become aware of the truth of the church. Um, I know that there are people who worked for the church, uh, like Ken Clark, who have indicated that lying for the Lord is condoned. And there's a gentleman in my book who I, who I interviewed, and he also says that it was suggested that building testimonies were the most important thing and, and not, not uh, the truth. And so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, also, Fanny Stenhouse, who was a writer uh, in the 19th century, she, I believe it was her, or it might have been Annaliza Webb, but she characterized and broke down Mormons into two groups, the lay membership, who were really good people, really trying to do what was right, and then the leaders who, who manipulated them and exploited them. And I think there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. Definitely is. Mm -hmm. And those are two good books I would highly recommend. Uh, Fanny Stenhouse's book uh, called Tell It All and Annie Liza Young's books. She was one of the wives of Brigham Young, and she writes a lot about her life with Brigham Young and in the early Mormon, and, and you'll be appalled at some of the things that the early Mormons did. Kay, we're out of time. I want to thank you again oh, so welcome. much for coming. It's been such a pleasure to, to work with you through this. And I would like to make our closing comments referring to something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. He said, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. You know, the Jews held their temple in great esteem. It was the center of their worship, the place that the annual sacrifice of atonement was made by the high priest. The Jews loved their temple. There was only one temple, and God warned there was only one place where he would put his name. And that place was on the one temple in Jerusalem, and there was no other place in the whole world that he would put his name. That temple was a type of the person who was going to be coming who would completely save his people.
people from their sins. The people only, or the temple only served as a pointer to Jesus Christ. And John 2.21 tells us that Jesus is the true temple of God. But when the true temple came, they mocked him. They claimed he wasn't who he claimed to be, which was God in the flesh. He was a threat to their religious system. In fact, Mark 15.10 tells us that they envied Jesus and that's why they killed him. And when they placed their temple rituals above the temple of God in the flesh, he warned them, one greater than the temple is here. So what do you value as equal to Jesus for salvation or more necessary than Jesus? Would it be the united order? Would it be plural marriage? Would it be your temple work? But one greater than the temple has come. God even destroyed the man-made temple because one greater than the temple had come. Jesus is God's temple. One greater than celestial marriage, one greater than any prophet has come. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus said we'd love one and hate the other. Throw out everything except Jesus Christ and love him alone because one greater than the prophet, than the temple, than your world, than your garment, than anything. One greater than everything has come and he is greater. He's all you need. Thanks for watching our show. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.